Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Iowa in the last week of my remote work summer uh, experience with my family. We've had a great time being near the grandparents with our boys this summer and are about to make our way back to the East Coast. I am so excited to welcome Martin Schell, who is the Vice President and Chief External Relations Officer at Stanford University. And after doing almost a hundred of these episodes, if I had a word cloud of other leaders who've been mentioned on the episodes, Martin and Shell would both be very large words in that word cloud. So you've clearly had a big impact on many of your peers in the sector. Martin, welcome to the Rays podcast. Thank you, Brent. Uh, it's it's an honor to be here, and uh, I, I congratulations on all the work you've done and the fact that you've kept this going remotely. Uh, I, I can't imagine Iowa toward the latter part of August. It's probably just, you know, lovely weather and no humidity and it's all good, right? Well, all my friends who live in Iowa leave this time of year to go to Colorado and that's when I show up and they don't really understand. They're either escaping to the lakes of Minnesota or going out west to Colorado and I show up uh, to bake. I will tell you last week though, Martin, we had an absolutely amazing experience. The Field of Dreams yeah, I saw the that. And the White Sox. And I was yeah. able to go down and help a friend coach a youth baseball clinic right around the field. And um, just after growing up with that movie as sort of the backdrop to my, my childhood and, and people reference it when you say you're from Iowa, they just reference the movie. It was yeah. amazing yeah. to see that come together. Well, and you mentioned your boys. How old are they? They're uh, almost eight, almost six and two and a half. Wow. All, all three boys? Yes. Wow. Congratulations. Um, yeah, I saw the Field of Dreams piece uh, uh, last week and thought, that is way cool. Um, so I'm glad you got a chance to uh, coach a team there. And they just announced today that the, the Reds and the Cubs are going to play a game next year. And so uh, it has quickly become a, a, a tradition. And so I, I so do does want- that mean two curses at once? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, look, it's going to be a tough act to follow, but everybody is excited to, uh, to be able to keep that, that dream, uh, alive for future yeah. years. And one of the things we've been doing, I, you know, happy to share a bit more about my backdrop or background. I grew up on a farm, uh, right in this area, uh, before having the opportunity to attend Brown university and play football and was a beneficiary of philanthropy that really transformed, um, my life. But my understanding is despite your um, long tenure in leadership at Stanford, overseeing some of the most successful fundraising uh, work uh, in history. Uh, you didn't start out in Silicon Valley. And I want to know a little bit more. I love hearing about my guests uh, and the leaders in this sector, your own journey into higher education, because so often we can connect uh, work today to um, some of the experiences you might have had on campus. So tell me about Martin junior year of high school. Who was that guy? Where was he? What was he into? And what led him to Hendricks College? Yeah, so uh, thank you. Uh, and um, you can probably tell there's there, I, I can do a pretty good Southern accent. I can even do a Bill Clinton if I need to. I grew up in Arkansas. Um, and junior year in high school, I uh, 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 was playing football, separated a shoulder, this shoulder, um, and wasn't sure if I should keep playing uh, high school football or not after surgery. 
Um, and I was working for a great little daily newspaper after school called the Log Cabin Democrat. Um, one of the oldest newspapers west of the Mississippi, three generation family owned in that great tradition of um, uh, journalism. And, you know, and, and actually, you know, you think about the history of this country, United States, the, the critical importance that journalism and newspapers played in helping to uh, preserve and expand the democracy of this country. This was a great place. Conway was the town where I grew up. There were three colleges in Conway, so it was a, a town of about 15,000, but a, a, a very you know, well-educated, committed community. Um, and so I got a chance to work at that newspaper, doing a variety of things, kind of closing up in the a after school and uh, closing things down. And, and, and then toward the end of my senior year in high school, I started doing some reporting and um, trying to decide where to go to college. Hendricks College, which is a great uh, liberal arts college in the tradition of, um, you know, just so many. This, I mean, when you look at the United States and you look at Iowa, I mean, look how many incredible liberal arts colleges there are in Iowa. You know, and that's not just Iowa and it's not just Arkansas. I mean, it's everywhere. And so debating between a couple of schools didn't, you know, did not look uh, broadly, looked uh, regionally and landed at Hendricks, probably in part because I knew I could keep working. And, and so I continued as a reporter. Um, the, the cabin, as we called it then, was an afternoon newspaper uh, uh, six days a week. Later added a, a Sunday morning edition, but it was a Monday through Saturday afternoon newspaper gave me a chance to go in early in the morning and, 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 and do my writing and then head to class at about 11 o'clock uh, in, in the morning. And um, unfortunately, I think, and if my, some of my faculty uh, members were on this call right now, they'd say, yeah, that's about right. My priorities were work, play, and then occasionally class. And um, I, I got a great education at Hendricks. I made a number of lifelong friends. And I, when I think about my own journey over time, um, the ability to work um, in, in a newspaper environment, the, the fact you're under a deadline, the fact that copy matters, the fact that clarity matters, the fact that accuracy matters, the fact that being concise matters. The, the publisher of the newspaper, Frank, Frank E. Robbins III. Uh, he was the third Frank Robbins to be publisher of the paper. As I said, it was a three-generation owned uh, news organization. Frank took me under his wing. Um, a really, really incredible guy. Uh, but he, he walked around the newsroom with uh, Strunk and White's element of style in his hand. And, you know, and, and so we were all kind of reminded that you take a lot of convoluted copy and you condense it into pristine, crisp language. Frank had a story, and I, I, I tell this sometimes to colleagues. Um, I, had, I had not been writing that long. I, again, maybe this is my senior year in high school, maybe the summer after my graduation from high school. And I had covered a, a, a fairly major um, event, and Frank had been at that event as well. And I asked him if he would, if he would read my copy. And, and, you know, he did, and, and he had this amazing ability to take junk and turn it into really, really nice prose and copy. 
And Frank had an analogy. As I said, the cabin was an afternoon newspaper. He said, you need to think about who you're writing for. And he said, you shouldn't be writing to impress your friends. You shouldn't be writing to impress a faculty member or, you know, a girlfriend or whatever. He said, you need to know who your audience is and you need to write and communicate to them. So I said the cabin was an afternoon newspaper. Frank said, I envision the, the person I try to write for. I envision a man, person coming out of the factory at the end of the day, coming home, picking up their, their log cabin Democrat on the driveway and picking it up, going into the house, opening up, sitting down in the chair and reading the paper. He said, that's who you should write for. And I have always found that, Brent, to be really good advice. Know who your audience is and communicate to your audience in a way that they can understand and not to impress somebody else, but to convey clear, concise, and, and now in the work that we do, oftentimes proactive communication to your audience. I love that background. I have to ask, how often do you talk about the Log Cabin Democrat? Yeah, probably not as much uh, as I maybe I did uh, years ago. But when I think about formative pieces of my career uh, and, and who, I, who I have become and, and assets that have been gathered along the way, the cabin plays an incredibly high. Yeah. Um, uh, and in fact, the, the president of Luther College uh, in, huh. um, in Iowa is the daughter. She was a classmate of mine in high school and a classmate of mine at Hendricks. Is, um, is the president now of the college in Iowa. And Jennifer Ward is her name. Her dad, John Ward, was another part of the log cabin cohort that was wow. fundamental to my background. I, was, I, I spent about an hour on a call with Jennifer a couple of weeks ago. Well, I will um, make sure to uh, share this with her. And Luther College is about uh, 18 miles that way. So uh, love to hear it, beautiful part of the country. And it's fitting. I just went to the cabin.net to see what's going on with the log cabin Democrat. And the, the headline story today is that the University of Central Arkansas celebrates the opening of their integrated health sciences building, which is one of the priorities as part of their current $100 million uh, fundraising initiative focused on health and wellness. So uh, right there, the intersection of philanthropy and the, the Democrat are on display, or the log cabin, as you said. Yeah, the the cat the, the Robbins family sold it, and it, it's it's been sold a couple of times since. Uh, you know, and we all know that uh, U.S. journalism is under some significant assault. But the cabin, the cabin is still there, primarily, I think now, net more more virtual than um, than paper. And I, I, just a quick aside: we have four kids, um, two out of college and two still in. Um, and, and I guess there's enough printer's ink still flowing in my blood that um, uh, I insisted um, that we physically take the paper. So we take three papers a day here. We get delivered the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the San Francisco Chronicle. Because I just, I think there's something about holding uh, a paper, a copy. Um, so as I said, I'll, I'll dive with a little drop or two of printer's ink still in my veins, I suspect. You know, I have periodically uh, done the same, not as consistently as it sounds like you have. 
But what always strikes me is that when it's the, the editor and the sections that govern what you read versus the algorithm, it really is a different experience. You know, when you think about how often now news, the intersection of news and eyeballs to drive the ad revenue, it's just different than that. You, you read articles in print that you would never stumble across in your Apple news feed or in whatever right. algorithm is gonna serve it up to you. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, in, in, for me, it's a trade-off, right? Because, you know, there, there are a lot of news outlets that you really wanna read, you know, whether it's the Washington Post or CNN, or, you know, depending on your you know, needing to see what, what various sides are saying, Fox News, Breitbart, um, LA Times, of course, in California, LA Times is a very important uh, source. Um, so, you know, I, I try to I try to stay up on a lot of different news feeds, but there is something about and you're right. I mean, you 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 flip into page 4A and all of a sudden you're seeing something on 4A that would never show up in a feed. Well said. Uh I just want to, typically we would sort of go through your background, but something you said about that aha moment of really being able to um, understand your reader. You know, who is that person? What do they look like? What are they doing? Down to imagine them clocking out for the day in the factory, walking home, grabbing the paper, and it's the first thing they do to get up to speed. That's a pretty poignant image. One of the real challenges that I've observed in the advancement world is that you don't have the luxury of being that specific. When I say to you, who is your persona? Well, you could say, well, it's Stanford alumni globally, but the difference between Stanford alumni on the West Coast, East Coast, North, South, Midwest, globally, the ones who are ultra high net worth, the ones that are still trying to get their start and get on solid financial footing, young, old, their cultures. I mean, there's so many different perspectives, which I think is one of the most beautiful parts of higher education that we can bring right. together a community like that with this shared affinity. But I think it makes the job of the advancement communications, external relations communicator much harder than being able to laser focus in on the factory worker clocking out at three o'clock that wants to understand what's going on around Conway, Arkansas. No, you're absolutely right. And it, it's, it's getting more complicated, right? Because there, there are hundreds, if not thousands of channels now of communication. But, you know, maybe, maybe my obituary will read, it all started because he worked for a newspaper. But, um, I actually think the skills that, again, I'll go back to being a reporter. One of the one now now let's 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 distill this into um, an advancement professional who is building a relationship with a prospective donor or prospective donor's family. What are the skills that you really need to be a great advancement professional? First of all, you need to listen. You need to, you know, you need to be speaking about 30% of the time and no more and listening about 70% of the time. And what are you listening for? You're listening for all kinds of things, but you're also asking a variety of questions to get to know that individual, to understand where their passions are, to understand, do they have a philanthropic intent? We, you know, we joke sometimes 
and, and some places where I've been in the past where, well, the philanthropy gene has not yet expressed itself in this individual, right? You know, so part of what you're trying to do is to, you know, determine are they philanthropically oriented? If the answer to that is yes, where and how, you know, and, you know, and Brent, you're doing it now. You've done it in, in a variety of podcasts. You're asking people, tell me your journey. How did you find your place to this? Why, why is this institution important to you now and to your family? And, and so, you know, in, in individual settings, I think we had that opportunity. The ability to do it more broadly, I think, is, is a bit of a challenge, but that also means we need to be very attuned to the variety of channels that come in, whether it's social media, whether it's email, whether it's group meetings or, or what. And um, because if anything in the last decade or two, I think it's become pretty clear that um, I'll stay in the United States for, for probably most of this conversation. So, but in the United States, people want to believe they've been heard. And, um, and so how we better understand and, and, and truly hear people, um, I think is critically important to our work. Well, maybe the way to think about it then is the same way that a larger newspaper, right? Stanford is not the log cabin Democrat. You've got a bigger constituency and a more, um, uh, just a broader um, reach. But when you think about the way that national newspapers, I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal right now, how is it organized? Well, what are the interest areas? World, US, politics, economy, business, tech, markets, books and arts, real estate. Maybe you take a structure like that and then add the word Stanford in front of it and then think about who is the reporter on your team responsible for communicating that story and that message with the lens of Stanford historically by way of things like the alumni magazine, and now obviously scaled much more broadly in a digital manner. And I think one of the things we've heard coming out of the pandemic is the ability for our entire community to be a Zoom link away, where right. everyone has adopted this frictionless opportunity. Yes, we get tired of it from time to time, but the ability to now convene people irrespective of geography around interest area with the Stanford brand or umbrella as the backstop has really been eye-opening for many uh, of, our, of our leaders. And so on one hand, we're thinking about what does the campus experience look like and how do we get back to throwing a great uh, reunion, hopefully this right. fall. Um, but on the other hand, how do we make sure we don't unlearn some of those things that we've, we've just learned that cut beyond class year or the school that you went to and can more connect you to who you are today with other folks from our community with shared interests. No, it's a really good point. And, and, and it's, in, it's inferred in what you've said, but the other piece is making sure we know what's going on internally because of the shared governance structure of almost all colleges and universities being plugged into where the faculty are engaged, being plugged in if you're at a research university where the research is being done so that, I mean, because we have an internal constituency that is critically important today, our students, and, you know, we, this, this is a more active uh, generation of students, and maybe uh, some of us who are getting a little long in the tooth might have experienced uh, when we were in college. 
So, you know, I think it, it, and, and therefore, I think one of the other opportunities and challenges for us is for those of us who are in advancement, how we bridge between a variety of external constituents and a variety of internal constituents. And I think that bridging candidly is is going to be one of our real challenges as uh, um, as it as higher education and more specifically advancement professionals uh, have to focus in the next few years. Um, you know, there's a there's a growing uh, statistical evidence that belies, I think, reality that a growing percentage of this country is not yet sure and understands the value of what we do and. Um, my fear is, and I, you know, I think this is true for a lot of places, we have failed to tell the stories about what happens on our campuses, about the magic, about the transformation, about the future that gets, that gets set and, and a foundation for the future gets built on a college or university campus. Let's talk about that a little bit because you, in your role at Stanford on one hand, but also as an industry leader by way of your work with Case and the Seifert Group, I know in particular, uh, and furthermore, you serve as a trustee at Hendricks College, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And so you've got a few different lenses, Stanford specific, Case as a um, broad uh, uh, advocacy global organization, and then certainly uh, a different flavor in a local uh, Arkansas context. Now, um, what frustrates me, having been a beneficiary of philanthropy, financial aid, a multi-generational impact in my life, my brother's life, my kid's life, my parents' lives, mm -hmm. but what you hear about is the student loan crisis. And so maybe even in the context of media and reporters, why are reporters always willing to write about the student loan crisis? But every time that there's one of those stories, why aren't we also hearing about the transformational first generation impact story that is being drowned out? Yeah. When is the nightly news doing that story versus yet another one about the challenges of higher ed, the declining belief in the need for a degree, the student loan crisis? Why are those stories the ones that get picked up? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I I can only I can only proffer some hypotheticals here. I'm not I'm you know I've not had this kind of that question I've not put to you know an editor of a, a major news outlet. But you know part of it I think is this transformation we've seen. We've talked we touched on it earlier. Um, you know the click throughs tend the click throughs tend to be more when they're sensational. When um, and you know and and there is a crisis um, in in uh, higher education when it comes to the debt that students carry, and you know there's some really compelling data. I haven't this is I haven't looked at this in two or three years, but I have to assume it's still probably pretty accurate that if you get the degree, then the debt is worth it. But a lot of people don't get the degree. And, and then all of a sudden, the value of whatever period of time is not doesn't show up in longer term um, income streams. But, you know, there, there is some great work. And uh, David Leonhardt from 
the New York Times has, has published a fair amount on this. It's the work that Raj Chetty, who's an economist at Harvard, actually he was at Stanford uh, when he did a fair amount of this work, done a lot of work on, on the mobility, uh, economic mobility that occurs for individuals who, who get you know, education. And, and part of it is, you know, done analysis of when people move from one um, public school district to another that's more robust, they tend to perform better. But Raj put together this analysis on mobility um, and, and kind of the, the best value uh, in, uh, in terms of bang for your buck, if you will, not my words, not his. But the, the city universities of New York in particular did remarkably well. And as I recall, the study, the analysis was it divided people into, into five strata economically and where they, what strata they were in when they arrived in college and what strata they were in when they were 33, I think. And what, you know, and it was, it was household income. And, and the, the CUNYs, there was just this, this rocket ship trajectory of people. You know, we need to be telling more of those stories. Um, we and need I, know, to, we... I know the story you're talking about and I love it. It also did shine a light on the fact that, you know, my one personal anecdote isn't necessarily as common as I might've thought that it is. And at the same time, whether it's the CUNYs or others, how do we go beyond sort of the macro stats, which yep. you need to start there down to who are the human beings that are represented in that mobility? And how do we make sure that that voice and story is told uh, in a way that uh, not only supports higher education, but continues to drive um, the impact story for philanthropy? Yeah, and, and I think the other piece, and this is, this is me being the optimist now, um, and you touched on this a minute ago, um, you know, the fact that uh, the frictionless connections that we now have through, through Zoom and other forms of virtual. What have we learned um, about this virtual piece? What, you know, we, we pivoted and, you know, there was a story, I don't remember now where I read this. It was in the last uh, couple of weeks um, that everyone talks about higher education is stuffy and, you know, can't change and so forth. Um, and yet in mid-March of 2020, most colleges and universities pivoted in a very short period of time to being fully residential, to being fully remote. And what have we learned from that? You know, who's got the best practices? What, what's happening in this space? And is there a hybrid teaching model? Now I'm staying in higher education for a minute. Is there a hybrid teaching model? that we can learn from this that will help us bend the cost curve. When the MOOCs came out a decade ago, everyone said it was going to you know, completely you know, revolutionize education, and they didn't. Now, you know, you've got Minerva and, and others, you know, Harvard and MIT just sold edX, you know, for $800 million or something. That's not a bad, not a bad ROI. Um, and, but, are the, is there an opportunity for us to take that and truly begin to bend the cost curve? Because the debt load is in some ways driven by the 
weighed the, the tuition demands that we have seen show up in higher education. And that I think is, is, is an opportunity for us. And long-term, I would argue, it's probably one of the better ways for us to develop long-term solutions uh, for some of these, these debt issues. Well said, look, Stanford University and Hendricks College and Luther College are not constrained by dorm space anymore or parking lots or the library space. And I think that's one of the real challenges as we navigate this future is the core of the higher education sector has been so focused on that physical presence. Uh, we had to flip everything to digital. I don't think anybody believes that <laughs> exclusively should be the right um, approach uh, in perpetuity. And I think in a certain regard, what the online providers have never figured out is how do we build the network? How do we build the relationships? How do we facilitate that true human to human connection that resulted in mentors that pushed me? <laughs> I'm sure you had mentors and, and faculty that push you. Um, and I think even as we've tried to help our teams gel in a virtual environment, it's a lot harder to do that than when you've got kind of the full human experience at your disposal. And so it's that balance of how do we scale our work with hybrid, um, but also make sure that that true human to human connection that has made Stanford and Brown and Luther College special remains. No, that's exactly right. And, um, and therefore, I mean, I think what we're learning on, on virtual, right, is that there's some things you can do. You know, if, if you know, if one of our uh, economists at the Stanford Graduate School of Business is arguing, um, you know, when you're having one-on-one -on -one meetings, Zoom's great. You can, you know, you can, the, like the conversation you and I are having right now. But when there are team meetings and other kinds of things, you really need to be physically together. So does that, if that model works in, in management of teams, uh, that model might be something we ought to think about in how we, we teach. And then when you bring, so let's say you, we're, Stanford's on a quarter system. Um, so let's say you bring students back for two out of three quarters a year. Uh, I mean, virtual two out of three quarters a year and on campus one quarter a year. What happens in that on, on that, in that on campus quarter experience that cannot be replicated virtually? What can be replicated virtually that doesn't need to be in that? And um, I actually think that, that the innovative institutions um, are going to crack this code sooner rather than later. And, and I'm, really, I'm really optimistic that that's going to help. It's, it's, going, it's going to enhance what we do. It's going to make our institutions more approachable at a broader level. And maybe it will slow the uh, wage inflation costs. Well said. Uh, we try not to script these because you never know where we're going to go. And we have uh, covered a lot of ground already. But I have to learn a little bit more about Conway, Arkansas, being at Hendricks College, making the move to Washington, D.C. And when you think about that chapter, that had to be a big change. Um, you know, uh, I think about my own move from the Midwest to the East Coast for the first time. Very different, not just the way people talk, but uh, a whole lot more to it. And so what was your reflection as you made the move to Washington, D.C.? Any poignant memories? Yeah, um, a couple. Uh, so I... I graduated from Hendricks 
I, I was, I, I never set out to want to be a newspaper reporter. I ended up being a newspaper reporter. Um, I had a pretty strong interest in, in the political sphere. Um, and I, I mentioned Jennifer Ward, uh, Luther College. Her dad, John, was the managing editor of the Log Cabinet Democrat. Um, John helped me uh, land a position as the press secretary for the congressman from the central part of the state, Little Rock area, Congressman Ed Bethune. Um, and, um, and so not long after finishing my collegiate, uh, career, I headed to DC, um, as, uh, as press secretary, I mean, talking about a fish out of water. Um, but John had a great line. In fact, I, I don't know, I don't, Brent, I was thinking about this the other day and that wasn't in the, in, in the context of this conversation, but John had a phrase. He took me out to lunch not long before I left. And, um, uh, to go to D.C. And he goes, you know, Martin, um, you're leaving a place where the voltage is 110 and you're going to a place where the voltage is 220. Some people plug into 220 and they get electrocuted. Some people plug into 220 and they never can let go. And so now a long time since John Ward said then John has, has since left us, uh, uh, um, God rest his soul. But I, you know, I, I, I think about John and I think about the 220 voltage. And I guess at the end of the day, I probably got plugged into 220 and 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 prefer it over 110. Um, and now you've got electric powered battery backed up 220. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah. a new level. Yeah. Yeah, well, we don't have a te we don't have a, a Tesla Tesla wall yet in our house out here, but it, it's under some consideration. Um, but you know, it uh, DC and 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 I, I hate to even say this, I'm getting so old. Um, but you know, it was it was in the early Reagan years. Washington was was vibrant and electric, um, and I learned a great deal uh, and. Uh, Ed was. Uh, I will uh, say having having enough friends who've gone who, who out of college went to D.C. It almost feels like it's a whole new college class. It's like the freshman class arrives every year, and it's it's almost like a informal grad school or like there's an alumni community. Just given the connectivity of young people plugging into 220 uh, in Washington D.C., it can be you know work hard, play hard, a lot of fun. Um, just what were some of your favorite memories? While at the same time, you're running into political celebrities literally every day, and you just have to kind of get used to that. Uh, I, I'm sure, you know, that initial shock, probably, you know, you were cool, calm, and collected then, but uh, uh, it had to be striking uh, moving from Arkansas into that um, environment. Yeah, it, 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 it was. And, um, you know, I think to your... To, D.C., at least the Hill at the time, and I think for a long time, probably still, is a young place. You know, the members now, and in particular, you look at some of the senior members, they've been there a long time. But, you know, staff tends to be, particularly the uh, entry-level staff, are oftentimes fresh out of college and, and, and vibrant. You know, as I said, I had an interest in and thought I had an interest in maybe getting into Public service after nearly three years in Washington that cured me of that. I I I, I overcame that disease, um, and you know, and and one of the things that struck me there was that 
perception was really the only reality that mattered. And, um, and, and you know, and I think, I think that's a challenge, continues to be a challenge. I think that unfortunately, now I'm going to editorialize for a minute. I think our world has tends to now be very perception driven. And yet the authenticity of who we are and what we do, particularly now I'm going to translate it back to advancement and engaging with people, being authentic, being genuine, being real is critically important, I think, to the success of our institutions. So there was a there was a discontinuity um, that I saw at times uh, in the way DC behaved. Um, but it so can was I ask, does that mean yeah. one should want to be perceived as authentic or that one should be authentic? So, I'm. My father was a Presbyterian minister. I, I'm. I'm. I will. I'll harken back to my own upbringing. I think one needs to be authentic, um, and uh, because I don't think you can. I don't think you can create uh, long-term um, fake authenticity over a long period of time. Yeah. Um, that's now we we got a lot of industries that spend a lot of time taking care of that. And so I'm, I'm not su to suggest that uh, I'm naive to believe that there's not a lot of this going on, but it's just more generally, I think for, for DC at the time, it really was about, uh, for me, it was like, wow. So ideally reality and perception are close to the same, um, but, but not always. Can I ask, are um, there members of Congress today that you met back then or that were uh, junior staffers like you were or kind of who, you know, who comes to mind as being people yeah, you shoulders with? Yeah. So there was, um, and I worked on the house side and, you know, there was, there was a, 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 a divide between the Senate and the house, you know, we, there, there, all, all the world's got a pecking order. Right. I do remember one day, um, being in, I was on the Senate side and for whatever reason I was in the, I guess I was meeting a reporter for one of the, the Arkansas papers in the press gallery on the Senate side. And all of a sudden there's this speaker, this voice comes in over the speaker and said, Senator Kennedy is in the gallery and available. And, and all of a sudden about half the room got up and quickly migrated over to the side where Ted Kennedy was holding court. And, uh, uh, you know, but you you get on an elevator to go to your, you know, end of the day to parking lot and you'd bump into, um, uh, you know, a, a member of Congress and used to see several uh, members from the Texas delegation. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm, I say this, I'm not sure I've ever had an original thought in my life, but I'm pretty good at borrowing others. And, you know, Tip O'Neill famously said, who was then Speaker of the House, Thomas P. Tip O'Neill from Massachusetts, all politics is local. And I think I think the tipster was right then. And I think he's still right. I have I have borrowed Tip's phrase when I think about our work in advancement and say that all philanthropy is personal and tying back to what we said a few minutes ago, how you create an opportunity for a donor or prospective donor to see themselves philanthropically in that gift, I think is one of the great assets that we can, we can give a donor as we engage them. 
So I, I take, I, I take my DC Thomas, my Tip O'Neill phrase and try to tie it into 2021 as well. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I know typically you probably spend a lot more time in interviews or conversations like this focused on Stanford and what's going on or what's going on in the industry. And it is really fun uh, to give uh, folks a window into your career path, you know, serving in such a, a unique leadership role at Stanford, but it wasn't necessarily the most predictable path. Um, at the same time, I can't keep a job. I mean, it's, it's pretty, when you look, when you look at my resume, you say, man, I wouldn't hire that guy. He moves all the time. I'd say you've done all right. Uh, keeping, yeah. keeping uh, the job and building the tenure and, and success at Stanford. And I, I want to fast forward to that part of um, your, your career. And as you sit where you sit in 2021, um, having been involved at Stanford during such a growth time for Stanford, during such a transformational time for Silicon Valley, venture capital, where the Stanford community that has always been strong has really uh, just been uh, profoundly uh, involved in so many of the uh, technologies that we're using right now that we, we have gone about to live our, our lives um, the same way that you brush shoulders with the political celebrities of Washington, D.C. You've now, uh, I'm sure, gotten very comfortable and accustomed to brushing shoulders with the technology and venture celebrities um, of our time. But as you think about the last um, you know, decade plus at Stanford, are there specific experiences or moments that you're able to share that have been really striking for you that if we all could be a fly on the wall, uh, it would have been fun to be a part of? Thank you. I, you know, um, I, I, have, I, I have had a, uh, I, I feel exceptionally fortunate to have had the opportunities I've had to connect with the people. I, you know, I, I left DC to go back to Hendricks as alumni director and then moved to the East Coast and uh, finished it at the University of Pennsylvania with at the law school with a, uh, a dean who was remarkable, a guy that I still try to communicate with, Colin Diver. Um, but one of the things that I discovered at, at, at Stanford, I landed at the law school and the law school was in a fundraising campaign when I got there. I, I came in in the la last 18 months of the, the campaign for Stanford Law School at the time. And, you know, we spend a lot of time in this business talking about volunteers and the role that volunteers play. Um, and I, I have I've worked with some great volunteers. I had never seen uh, a a, a group of volunteers as committed to the success of a place as my own experience has been at Stanford. The law school campaign was transformative. The law school alumni population, and, and I had nothing to do with this, this all happening before I arrived, had been kind of on the sidelines, you know, kind of not sure that the law school really wanted to uh, engage with them. A, a, a new dean had come in and, 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 uh, a new advancement team and, and the law school put a lot of resources into advancement and began to engage a, a volunteer population that truly was transformative for the success of the law school. And um, what I then discovered as I, my line of sight, you know, the, the, the problem with being in, in, in a unit at, at a big university, for those of you who were a part of that, is, you know, you can get pretty myopic pretty quickly. And um, 
quick story. I was I was moving into a associate VP position from the law school, associate VP for development position. I was uh, had lunch with a colleague from the School of Engineering, and and she said, "Would you like to have a tour of engineering?" I said, "That'd be great." And so we walk out, and you can imagine the engineering side of Stanford's got a few buildings, and this is before we built a number of them now. And you know, about fifteen minutes into the tour, I said, "Laura." I had no idea this part of Stanford existed, but whether it was the engineering side or otherwise, there's a committed, there were a really, really remarkable group of committed volunteers and, and they saw, and I think some of this is built into the DNA of of the place. Stanford is, is, you know, Western, you know, we're, we're on the Western edge of the continent. Um, the Stanford family made their money in, in entrepreneurial activities in, in the, uh, you know, the Central Pacific Railroad and the Transcontinental Railroad merging in Promontory, Utah, when the Union Pacific came from Iowa uh, going west and the Central Pacific coming from Sacramento going east through the Sierras and then meeting in the mountains uh, north of uh, Salt Lake City. You know, but when the university was founded, it was out of an act of love and tragedy because the Stanfords had lost their only child, a son, Leland Jr., and they chose to, to create the university. But Brent, if you looked at 1885, if you looked at the pictures of the farm, and that's what it was referred to, it was one of the Stanford's farms. The Stanford's were wildly uh, wealthy um, at this point, but had lost their child. It was in the middle of nowhere. And the East Coast papers talked about Leland's folly and what good will ever come from California. So they took a remarkable risk to found a university. I actually think that's part of baked into the DNA of the place, risk taking and forward thinking and promise focus. And, you know, it was it was the Stanford provost, Fred Terman, who put Dave Packard and Bill Hewlett together and helped and gave them some startup money um, to form what became Hewlett Packard. And, you know, so the, the genesis of Silicon Valley came from um, the work that Stanford faculty and others gave. That has been a remarkable success story. The university is inextricably intertwined with the success of Silicon Valley. But we're not Silicon Valley. And I think that's part of what, as we think about going forward, reminding ourselves and the rest of the world that we are a broad university with a great liberal arts tradition and not just, um, uh, uh, I mean, a remarkable engineering tech institution, but we're not just that. Uh, I really appreciate the background and you know, DNA, whether it's a university, or a startup company, it's formed very early. Cultures form very early, and it's one of the hardest things to change. You can change the products, you can launch a new program, but was it entrepreneurial and philanthropic at its founding, or was there a different catalyst that is um, going to persist? I will say I have had as good of a window into Stanford as, as any other university by way of um, uh, my experience in business school, I was uh, pursuing my MBA at Harvard, and one of my closest friends in our section played quarterback at Stanford, Kyle Matter. He was the class of 2005, and his wife, Chelsea, was a Stanford cheerleader, and we actually lived with them my second year of business school, my wife and me, and, uh, and the two of them and their 
uh, to this day, their Stanford um, photos and, uh, and and passion have really uh, really struck me, and it's been fun to get a window into into their world. Um, I also, on that note, want to just have you comment a bit on the relationship between the Alumni Association mm -hmm. and development. And I've had the uh, privilege to get to know Howard Wolf over the mm -hmm. years, um, but there is truly a unique structure um, that some might even find uh, confusing or controversial, but it's worked well uh, for you all. Um, and, and I just love to kind of get your perspective on the connectivity between the Alumni Association and the fundraising operation. Yeah, th thank you. It's it's a great question, and we are. And I think we are increasingly unique um, in 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 certainly parts of higher education. So the alumni association was a separate five hundred one c three for a number of years. Um, the the alumni body. This was under uh, the tenure of then Stanford President Gerhard Casper, who was Stanford's ninth president. Um, the alumni body chose and voted to merge with the university. Um, the Alumni Association is a division of the university, but with the president of the Alumni Association reporting into the president of the university. Um, and, 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 you know, there, there, are, um, there are occasional differences of how one looks at an alumni body. Um, that present probably between a development office that is thinking about philanthropy pretty much around the clock and, and the Alumni Association thinking about alumni engagement pretty much around the clock. Um, but there, there's a lot of, there, you know, the Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlap. And, um, and I think in particular, um, in, in the early part of the uh, 2000s, the, the Alumni Association and the Development Office began working and, and, and cohabitating, if you will, in the same building in uh, uh, the Francis C. Arriaga Alumni Center, which is a wonderful facility on our campus. And that by its very nature, you know, you, you I mean, back to our points about hybrid versus in-person versus Zoom, um, the ability to bump into people, we actually, uh, the building's laid out such a way that um, the, the reunion team that is doing reunion fundraising is, is adjacent to the Alumni Association's classes team. Uh, the team that's doing regional fundraising, I tend to point geographically, I apologize. Uh, the team that, that uh, is doing regional fundraising is uh, is by near the region section of where the alumni. So there's a there's a lot of overlap there. Um, Howard is um, a remarkable individual. Uh, he's been president of the alumni association now. Uh, I guess he's going uh, just to complete his twentieth year. Um, and and when I was the vice president for development, you know, it seemed like our our offices were on kind of either end of a hallway. One of us was in the other person's office every day, if not several times a day. Um, I think John Denny, who is now the vice president for development, John and Howard uh, have a great working relationship. Howard and I continue to engage a lot. So we are a bit unique. Um, and, and, you know, I, I have to believe that the level of engagement and investment that Stanford has made in its alumni relations outside of development has been critically important to our long-term fundraising success. 
I do think, and I think I, I touched on this in, in some notes that we were sharing beforehand, Brent, but I think this level of engagement, I, I, I am concerned that as costs go up and as, as we're looking for cost consciousness, we have to be mindful institutionally to invest in the long term. And, um, and, and that means meeting people along a long journey. And that means that journey may or may not lead to philanthropy for a while, but that engagement is critically important to the long-term success of our institutions. And that tension is real and we hear about it all the time because when the rubber hits the road in budgeting season, do I spend that $100,000 on one more fundraiser who over a two or three year period could raise X dollars with Y pipeline? Or do I spend that $100,000 on some sort of virtual programming focused on getting our most recent graduates well-situated in their first job? And those are gonna be at odds. One is a revenue center, one is a cost center, one is short-term impact, one is long-term. And that is a really tough tension uh, to navigate. And so, you know, I'd love your perspective um, on, on that, especially given the fact that you are somebody who has helped oversee $12 billion plus in fundraising. It's actually sort of interesting to hear you say, even though that's been so successful, we might be over rotating to that near-term revenue side of the equation. Yeah. I used to say this, and I, um, when we were in the middle of our last university-wide campaign, the more we focused on the long-term, the better our short-term fundraising results were. And I, I think some of that, uh, this was, uh, John Hennessy was uh, the president of the university at the time. I was leaving the law school to go into the university development office and uh, John and I had been talking about some stuff on a, a prospect relationship that we, the two of us had been working on. And the conversation segued into the, my leaving the law school to, to head to uh, the university development office. And, and John's point to me was, and I, some of you have heard me, if you've been to some of the Summer Institute stuff, I've said this before. Um, John said, you know, the development office has to have the longest term horizon of anybody on the university campus. You should be thinking about Stanford for the next thousand years. Well, I can assure you my line of sight's not a thousand years. It may not be a thousand seconds. But the important piece of that is at some level, parts of the institution have to keep thinking long term. I mean, you, you look at Oxford and Cambridge, Oxford in particular, right? Oxford's 1100, almost 1100 years old, you know. The Black Death, they survived, both Oxford and Cambridge survived the Black Death. You know, when you look at some of the most longest lasting institutions on the planet, it's educational institutions. And, and I think in some ways the world is turning more even to rely on our institutions for problems to be solved. And so I think we have to think long term. Um, I think our donors want us to think long term. And if if, if we can, and, and granted, some of us are sitting in positions where we're a little less concerned about what the annual philanthropic uh, results are going to be because we have endowment, we have other. So I think some of us are in a position to be more, more thoughtful about long-term. But as advancement professionals, helping our academic leaders 
realize that part of their job is to keep building upon a foundation that they inherited, but they're not going to finish the castle under their watch. And, um, I, you know, I, some of this comes from my days in law school where you looked at a lot of universe, I mean, there's like 180 ABA uh, accredited law schools in the United States. And I think the average life expectancy of a law school dean when I was living in this world 15 years ago was two and a half or three years. So, you know, how, how do we keep continuity going um, with that kind of change? And so it, it's, it's a struggle. And I don't have, again, I don't have a, a crystal ball or a, you know, a magic wand for this. But I do think if you think about your own engagement with prospective donors, most of that started before you arrived, right? And you know, we all talk about standing on the shoulders of those who came before us. So I had years ago working for Ed Hendricks, there was a Methodist minister named Jim Major who, who was, had left the pastorate to become a development officer. And Jim's phrase to me was, you're harvesting fruit in a vineyard you didn't plant. Your job is to nurture that vineyard so that others will harvest fruit after you're gone. Really well said. And I have to say, I need to know more quotes from other people because you are really good at drawing on those quotes. I know, Martin, that we are up on time and this has flown by. If you have time, I do want to just understand your role at CIFR, why on top of everything that you've been, uh, been managing professionally, your work with Hendricks College, being a parent with four kids, you've still carved out time to support professional development within the CIFR community. Um, just tell me about that leadership team. I know you all have been really tight knit um, and why you do that and why you'd encourage other folks to pay more attention to that work if they're listening. Yeah, thank you. Um... We talk about transformative things in our lives. So, you know, I leave DC, I go back to Hendricks, I'm alumni director. There are a couple of, there's a new vice president, I mean, the whole development team, advancement team has been rebuilt. Three of us headed to Hanover, New Hampshire in the mid 1980s to go spend a week in, in, uh, Hanover, New Hampshire. And for those who don't know, I mean, this is advancement summer camp, basically. It, uh, it is. I mean, and of course, it, it, it's, and, you know, coming from Arkansas, you know, it's hot and sticky. You land there. It's gorgeous. Although I didn't think I'd ever live in a dorm again. But, you know, you live in a dorm. Um, and it was it was amazing. Great faculty. A lot of, you know, I was with a couple of colleagues, as I said, but also met other people um, and, and found it unbelievably uh, uh, transformative. Fast forward 20 years and Sarah Pearson, who was then vice president uh, at Northwestern, I'd gotten to know Sarah in a variety of roles. Sarah invited me to uh, join the faculty of the Summer Institute. And I felt like it was um, it was a great experience. And I felt like I wanted to be a part of that if I could. And if I could to help give back to a profession that had been really, really remarkable for me personally. And I got there and boy, I tell you what, there's a wonder they brought me back at all. I, I didn't, um, I, I didn't mail it in, but I wasn't quite as focused on the level of quality engagement that the faculty did. 
And um, Jim Husson, who I, you know well, Jim was a new faculty member as well. There were, um, Karen Osborne had been on for a while. Karen was in, you know, it's just, it was Sarah um, uh, Fritz, had, was Fritz, I don't know if Fritz Schrader had been, Fritz may have come back in. Uh, I think Fritz had been out and he came back in later. Uh, but it was just this amazing group. David Jones from the University of Georgia, we discovered that we were brothers, you know, uh, separated at birth. And, you know, and so there was a great bonding. And, um, uh, and it was a lot of fun and, and engaged with a group of people who cared earnestly about what we do. And, um, you know, so I, 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 Norma Walker was the, you know, heading this up. Jen Lichty was, was Norma's assistant. Somehow Norma invited me back. I'm still not sure why, given my, given some of my uh, performance in that first year, but Brent, I ended up doing it. You know, I've, I've, I've now since stepped out, but I, I guess I ended up doing it for 12 years, I took I took a I took a sabbatical year, and I was the most miserable August I think I've spent in forever because there's just such a tight knit group and um, a, a faculty and a remarkable group of participants. And you know, I, I said I'm an optimist. I've come to realize in the COVID period that I'm really an idealist. I'm not nearly as optimistic as I am idealistic. I actually think what we do has never been more important. And, you know, you can work, you can have the privilege of working at Harvard, Stanford, Princeton, Yale, Brown, Penn, fill in the blank. And we do great work at those institutions, but we do remarkable work at the University of Central Arkansas or at Luther College or at Hendricks College or at the University of Alabama or the University of South Carolina, University of Miami. Arizona State, UCLA, University of Washington, University of Michigan, you just rattle off the institutions. And to my colleagues on the other side of the bay, the University of California, Berkeley, God bless Berkeley. And we do remarkable work. And at some level, the work that we do has never been more important because our institutions need it now more than ever. We have to find the resources that are declining at the state level at many institutions to shore up what we do. And we have to help our institutions communicate more effectively with Washington, D.C. and with the general public that American higher education is one of the most remarkable, I dare I say, industries that has ever been perfected in this country. And it needs to be nourished in ways that are more important now than ever. I would love to continue for at least another hour, but I can't imagine uh, better thoughts to conclude with. Martin, thank you so much. Um, this has been a real privilege. And for folks who are listening and want to get in touch, I, I know you're on LinkedIn, or is there a different way that you'd encourage folks, um, you know, if they kind of just want to want to connect, recognizing our inboxes are all uh, plentiful, but, uh, but I'm sure with 12 years of CIFR alumni uh, in your inbox, you are deft at navigating uh, that anyway. Yeah, so LinkedIn is probably the best. And part of the reason why I'm saying that I'm not as, I'm not as um, focused on LinkedIn as I need to be. And I keep getting reminders from them. I've got a lot of things that need to be attended to. So if I say LinkedIn, that'll just double down on disciplining me to get into LinkedIn and kind of dust things up a bit. 
Well, I hear there were a couple of Stanford alumni involved with LinkedIn, so that probably uh, probably makes sense. <laughs> yeah, uh, it could be career limiting if I don't. <laughs> well, Martin, thank you so much for sharing your journey uh, with the Rays community. Unbelievable um, stories and from the log cabin to Washington, D.C. to uh, the farm. We really appreciate your time. With that, Brent signing off from Iowa with Martin Schell from Stanford University. Take care. Brent, thank you. Thank you.